Hi there and welcome to the Book Realities Podcast, a series of interviews with independently minded authors where we explore their books, their writing techniques, and what made them become a writer in the first place. I'm your host, Ian Hooper, and as well as being an independent author, I also run the Book Reality Experience. Hi everybody and welcome to another Book Realities, our series of interviews with authors. And today we're joined by Gabriella Lang, the author of the memoir For Food and Freedom. Hi Gabriella, lovely to see you. Hello Ian, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. Now, for those that don't know you, where are you? Because you look as if you're on the banks of a glorious European lake there. Mm. Well, I'm actually in Sydney, but I wish I was in the Catherine Palace at Tsarskoselo in Russia. That's the photo. Now, we'll come back to the Russian elements later, but who are you and what do you do when you're not writing? Um, I work in the not-for-profit space. Um, I am actually a lawyer, but many years ago I saw the light and decided to go off and do something useful. Um, I work in philanthropy at the Melanoma Institute and I work with major donors, um, basically putting together funding proposals to fund research and equipment and fellowships and things like that. So it's, it's, it's an amazing way of using some of my legal skills. Fantastic. Now, obviously, with legal comes writing. So you've been writing since at least university days. Um, what took you into writing for fun? I've always written. I mean, I I, I started writing when I was about seven or eight. Um, luckily, I didn't keep any of it because it would be hugely embarrassing. But I was very fortunate because in year 11 and 12, I had a wonderful um, English teacher and he really encouraged me. And as part of his sort of weekly torture, he made us all write um, a creative piece, as well as all the other stuff we were doing for the HSC. And I just discovered I loved it. I just loved it. So poor man, I bombarded him every Monday with three or four pieces. And, you know, God bless him. He was very encouraging. And I think that was the start. So from there, you obviously went to university, studied law, But the book that we're here to talk about today is a a memoir, but it's not your memoir, is it? It's my parents' story. I mean, my my parents left Hungary in 1956 as refugees and they came to Australia. Sorry, I'm just going to... So for anybody that's not a student of history, why is 1956 such an important year in Hungary's history? Well, in 1956, the Russians basically came back for the second time. The, The Russians liberated, in inverted commas, Hungary in 1944 from the Nazis, and they didn't leave. Um, They have a habit of doing that, actually. They sort of come in and then they forget to go home. And they, in 1948, they basically took over completely. So they took over the government. They took over everything. Um, And the people really didn't want it because they didn't want to be socialist. I mean, Hungary's never been socialist. Hungary's hungry. And in 1956, they quite a spontaneous revolution broke out. And it actually looked like for about five seconds that they would get rid of the Russians. The Russians actually recalled their troops. They took all the tanks out of Budapest and they waited on the border. And the Hungarians were desperate for the West, particularly the English and the Americans, to come in and help them. Um, The English and the Americans said, yes, of course, we're coming. And, of course, they didn't. Um, Look, it was not 
Britain's finest hour, if I can say that, nor the Americans. And so at the beginning of November, the Russian tanks came back in and they crushed the revolution. And hundreds and thousands of young people, it was mainly young people, many university students, they were jailed, they were murdered, they disappeared. Um, and a lot of Hungarians voted with their feet. They just left. And my parents were very fortunate in that at the time, um, they didn't live in Budapest. They lived in Gyur, which is halfway between Vienna and Budapest. And because all the manpower, all the troops had been called from the borders into Budapest to basically, you know, kill people and put down the uprising, for a couple of days, the Austro-Hungarian border was um, was un unmanned or less manned than it had been. So my parents took a decision. They packed a suitcase and with a whole lot of other people headed off and walked 60 kilometres until they got to Austria and they got across the border. Wow. That in itself makes a remarkable story and obviously with repercussions as to exactly what is going on today in certain parts of Ukraine. It's, it's really, it's a real, real mirror of what's going on today. Yeah. I have, um, strangely, one of the uh, women who I've used as a translator in the past for Ukrainian uh, language in some of my fiction novels uh, walked out of Ukraine with her child to yeah. to the Ukrainian border and got away. So your parents, on the back of that, get to Austria. Yeah. Was it a misspelling that you now live in Australia? What, what's going on? No, well, they went to Austria because, I mean, they, that's where they walked to. That was, that was where freedom was. And they had about five or six months in a refugee camp with a whole lot of other Hungarians. And then they were given the opportunity of either going to Canada or to Australia or to West Germany. My father had a degree in textiles, and those countries were the countries that actually wanted to build up that particular industry. And having lived through the war and having lived through the revolution, my parents were pretty jack of Europe. So they said they were going as far away from Europe as they could. So they came to Australia. In the meantime, my uncle had actually come out in 1948. He he skipped across the border in 1948 when the Russians basically took over for the first time. So he was already here. So they had that tenuous yeah, and yeah, familiar yeah. link. Now, the memoir that you've written that obviously is the, the instigating uh, moment within it, but it's called For Food and Freedom. So where does the food come from? Um, well, the food part of it is really important to my parents' story because my mother was a fantastic cook. And, I mean, Hungarian women tend to cook like the Russian army is just over the next hill, so you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Um, so food was very instrumental in my upbringing and in our family. But my mother actually gave me the title. Um, years later, we started going back to Hungary in 1974 because until then my parents weren't allowed to go back because technically, you know, they were um, they were enemies of the state. I mean, they had left illegally. But after 1974, they were allowed to go back, so we started going back regularly. And I remember... On one of, it was probably our first trip standing in Yur, which is where we came from, the city we came from. And it's this beautiful medieval city, which in those days probably wasn't beautiful because the Russians had trashed it and there was industry everywhere. But anyway, it, it is a very beautiful city. And it's on the junction of three rivers. 
And I remember standing there with my mother and it was winter and it was just this incredibly beautiful scene with, with the conjunction of the rivers and, and, you know, the, the, the mist. And it was just absolutely stunning. And I looked out across the water and I said to my mother, how could you bear to leave all this beauty? And she turned back and she said, for food and for freedom. So when I wrote the book many years later, I thought, yeah, there's your title. And, and it's a brilliant title and mm. it encapsulates so much in that mm. single sentence. So you've taken their story through. They arrived into Sydney. There was actually, because of the Prague Spring, there was a vibrant Hungarian uh, expat community in yes. Sydney. Why did you decide to concentrate on the stories that you did? Because obviously you can write a, a myriad of stories. Mm. Um, why did you choose the ones that you did? Was, was it particular to you or were they leap, did they leap at you from your own personal history? Or was it tied to this structure that you've used, which is your mother's favourite recipes going through the book? Um, that's a really good question. And the answer, I'm going, to, I'm going to put on my legal hat at the moment. The answer is all of the above to some extent. I, I started writing it just in chapters because, as you know, it's not really chronological. I mean, it starts off with my mother being very ill and ends with my mother dying. But the rest of the stuff is sort of just, you know, kind of plays out in the, in the middle. So there was no real chronology. I just started writing each chapter as I thought of writing it. And the idea of the recipes came to me later. So that influenced some of the chapters. But I just I just sort of picked stories that I thought people would be interested in. I picked stories where I could put in quite a bit of history because history is my passion. Um, and I just picked stories I thought would be amusing. I mean, there were a lot more, but I, they're, they're the ones I thought would really resonate with people. Well, I think that the ones that you picked were fascinating. It is a beautiful book. It, it's yes. yes, there are obviously, like all memoirs, there's humour and pathos, etc. But the story of your parents, the bravery for mm. a young couple to pack a suitcase and end up on the other side of the world. I mean, looking back now, here you are, a successful mm. philanthropic lawyer. I can almost say that word, philanthropic. Um, when you look from here, it looks like, well, that was obviously all laid out. Everybody's going to be successful. But yeah. that's not the case at all when you pack a suitcase and head for a border. No, it's not. And I mean, I I think one of the chapters I most enjoyed writing is called The Suitcase, because we still actually have their suitcase and they kept it. And, I mean, in that are the things that they actually managed to bring with them because they were about to walk 60 kilometres. They weren't going to be packing, you know, a lot of stuff. And I, I mean, when, after my mother died and I found it and I unpacked it, it just really hit me that this is what they came out with. And to sort of the courage that it took and, and the dedication and the resilience to just, you know, walk across the border with nothing to come to a country where they couldn't speak the language. You know, I mean, they knew nothing about Australia. I think they knew we had kangaroos, but that's about the extent of it. So, and that was the other reason I wanted to tell the story, Ian, because I thought, because I'm quite a bit older than my brother, um, I'm, I'm sort of the keeper. I was always the keeper of those stories. And I thought, after my mother died, I thought, well, if I'm run over by a bus tomorrow, these stories will die with me. And I didn't want them to. 
And you're not just writing this for your own family. I mean, the fact that there there was such a vibrant Hungarian community in Sydney, so many of these families will have had similar experiences. And we should say that when we talk about your your mother and father walking 60 kilometres across the border, this wasn't a a country hike either. It wasn't a a stroll in the park. No, no. They were being chased and shot at. Well, they were being chased and shot at and they had to walk um, at night because, well, it was it was complicated because even though the borders themselves weren't guarded, there were Russian troops patrolling up and down. So they couldn't walk on the highway. They had to walk through fields. And we're talking about November. And November, you know, it's not the time you take a stroll in the Hungarian countryside. Years later, I went back to Hungary and I decided to try and do a bit of the walk so I caught the train to the closest railway station and I decided I'd sort of see, see if I could walk for an hour or so, you know, see how it would work. This was the beginning of December, so it was very close in terms of temperature and climate. I lasted 10 minutes. It was freezing. It was bitter. It was cold. It was horrible. And I was walking on the highway um, and I wasn't frightened of, you know, being seen by um being seen by Russians and being shot at. And it was it was horrendous. And for two young people, I mean, my mother was 22, my father was 27, and they were with four other people. You know, I mean, it just, I think back now and I honestly have to question whether I would have the courage to do it. I'd like to think I do. I'd like, like to think I would, but I'm not sure. It's interesting when we put that into... Um, context for today and what's happened on the borders of the Ukraine, we think, you know, people get out of a war zone, but it's not quite as simple as catching a bus. Now, the interesting thing that we've talked about that could be misconstrued, people could forgive you for detesting the Russian nation as a a nation. I knew we were going to go And I find it remarkable that certain things, I mean, I'm Northern Irish, the Irish apparently have a problem with the British and the English. Yes, historically, you can have a problem with that context of that nation, but that doesn't mean that you have to hate everything about it. And you are a personification of that, because I imagine that you could be forgiven for disliking the Russians as an entity, and yet this isn't the first book you've written, and you actually just aren't just a lawyer. You're actually Dr. Lang, aren't you? I am. I have a PhD in Russian history. Russian history. Yep. Let's just rewind on that. Russian history. I mean, my father was not thrilled when I told him I was going to. I mean, I, I've always been fascinated by history, and I've always been fascinated by that particular period of history. And I don't know why. I don't know where it came from but it's always been my passion. And my father believed very simply that the only good Russian is a dead Russian. And with his background, I get it, Ian. I really do. But what I tried to explain to him for many, many, many years is that I I hate the Soviets. I hate the Soviet system. And I do because I, I see what it's done. And even now I see what Putin is doing, you know, that whole dictatorship thing. But my passion is not for that. My passion is for imperial Russia. My passion is for the Russia of the Romanovs. And that's what I've studied and that's what my PhD is in. 
And I've been very blessed because I've been able to go backwards and forwards to Russia a lot. And every time I went off while my father was still alive, you know, he, he wasn't thrilled, but he was supportive. Now, when you say the Romanovs, obviously we, we know what happened to the final, the Tsar and his family. And we also know that they were discovered many, many years later yes. and laid to rest in St. Petersburg. And you were there. Yes. Um, look, I, I'm one of the few people who've ever gate-crashed a funeral. Um, I, it was a very long story, but I had been backwards and forwards to St. Petersburg a number of times by then and had made really amazing connections. I mean, I just believe, in that when you're doing what you're meant to be doing, however weird and bizarre it may seem, doors will open. And that's really what happened with my PhD. As soon as I started doing it, doors just opened. I mean, when I decided to do it in 1995, no one ever took me aside, thank goodness, and said, are you insane? I mean, you're in Australia. The documents you want to look at are in Russia. And, oh, by the way, you don't speak Russian. No one actually said that. So, you know, kind of, you know, in the dark, I headed off. And the doors opened. And by the time it was 1998, when the government, Yeltsin's government, finally decided to do the right thing and inter the bones in the Peter Paul Fortress, which is where they needed to be, I made some really amazing connections. And I was in um, St. Petersburg in July when they were holding the funeral. And through a whole lot of connections, I actually got to go to the funeral, which was pretty amazing. So there's actually a photograph in the Peter and Paul for Peter Paul Fortress of the whole kind of funeral, like you know, all the hundreds of people at the funeral. And right in the very back is me. Very good. I think that's a remarkable um, feat to have gone to something that is such a historical event. And you told me once before that half of the uh, congregation had a massive intake of breath when a certain <laughs> member of the current royal family from Britain walked in. Oh, it was so funny. I mean, the whole thing was totally surreal. You know, I mean, it was surreal to me because I'm standing there going, you know, what am I doing here? What is this? And we're all waiting for the official party to arrive. And Boris Yeltsin originally had said he wasn't coming. But then because he didn't, he didn't, he couldn't quite gauge whether it was going to be a good thing, you know, in terms of people and politically or not. So he sort of hedged his bets and he said he wasn't going to go. But the night before when they, or the day before, when they actually brought all the coffins back from Yekaterinburg and they went through Petersburg to take them to the Peter Paul Fortress, there were literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people who had turned out to see it. So obviously Yeltsin's advisor took him aside and said, look, I think you better put in an appearance. So Yeltsin turns up. So we're all standing around and you don't sit down in Russian churches. You know, you stand. And if the, if the service takes four hours, well, you know, you stand. So we're all standing there and it's just this amazing scene. Have you been to the Peter and Paul Fortress? No, not in, not in person, no. The church there is magic and, and it's always light coming through, you know, the, the roof and it's just beautiful. And I'm standing there going, okay, you know, I'm dreaming now. I just hope, I just wish I hope not to wake up before it's all over. And then the official party walks in. And so there's, there's Yeltsin and I can't remember who else. And immediately behind him was Prince Michael of Kent, who was re representing the Queen. Now, Prince Michael of Kent has always looked exactly like Nicholas II. And at that age, he was pretty much the same age as Nicholas was when he was executed. So 
there's this amazing intake of breath of all of the Russians and they're all going, <laughs> it was so funny. It was so funny. <laughs> I said that I've never been in person, by the way. There's a fantastic internet resource now where you can tour any city with, and it's not just you clicking. This is you going on a tour yeah. with a guide who takes his webcam or her webcam along and, and is local and gives you a tour of Moscow or St. Petersburg yeah. and, or Sydney. And yeah. it's, it is brilliant. And the Winter Palace tour was phenomenally uh, uh, good to, to do. But yes, the, the idea that when you look at the old photographs and you put Prince Michael of Kent up alongside them, I mean, yeah, doppelganger isn't isn't word. So you've studied Russian, you've studied Russian imperial history, you've written a book about Russian imperial history. There is a fictional book coming Yes, there is. It is coming in, I promise. <laughs> no, many years ago, and I mean many years ago, about 25 years ago, I got an idea for a work of fiction which is set in Siberia in 1943 in the house where the imperial family were murdered. But there's kind of quite a, there's a bit of time travel sort of happening. And I put it away for a long time, but I've now dug it out again. And I've, I've sort of got more, I've suddenly been very inspired. I've actually started to keep, to write it again. And I've introduced extra characters. So look, I think it's a good story. Whether it will be well written is not for me to judge. Um, but it's a story that even though it's fiction is actually based on history because I do know that in 1943 a very small number of English officers were actually sent to Siberia as part of the sort of you know allied cooperation and it's not outside the realms of possibility that somebody would have been housed there. Fantastic I know when you say it's not may not be well written I shall beg to differ because if your preceding books for Food and Freedom and your uh, PhD book on the Romanovs if they are anything to go by, this other one will be well-written. So take that as the compliment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, speaking of writing then, so you've had this book in a bottom drawer for X amount. Yes. Um, how do you write? Do you need a computer? Do you write by hand? Do you have to have... Do you have to be sat in a rose garden with a glass of wine? Is there is there a trick? I wish. I wish. No, I mean, I, I write on a laptop. Um and I need blocks of time to write. I'm not talented enough to just sit down for half an hour every night and churn something up. It doesn't work for me. I need time to find the voice again. I mean, for the memoir, it was my voice, but I still needed time to find that. So normally I spend about an hour rereading what I've written, and then I start to write, and I need, I need blocks of time. So with those blocks, have you planned out what you're going to write? Are you are you a systematic plotter with tons of post-it notes laid out with a timeline? Or is it with an inkling of an idea you sit down and write and see where it generically takes you? I mean, that's, that's another really good question because in my professional life, um, my colleagues would tell me that I am incredibly strategic and very organized and very well planned i mean i will you know i will plan something to the nth degree i drive people mad but it may, means that 
whatever I'm planning will actually work because there are no there are no areas that can go wrong. But I think it's different with my writing because it's almost like the story comes through me. I know where it begins. I know where it ends. I know where who the characters are. And I know the main plot, but how that story gets told, it sort of just happens. I mean, I'll give you an example. Originally, the book was going to be my hero's diary. He was going to tell it all in the first person as a diary. Well, it was really boring. I mean, I can say that, but it was really great story, badly written. Now, I think I'm actually going to kill him off quite early, but the diary is then left to someone else who tells the story based on the diary, but in her voice. So the story that is told will be the same, but it'll be told differently. And that's only something I came up with the other day. See, that's intriguing because it ties in with what a lot of authors that I've spoken to have said, that they've got an inkling of an idea and they maybe build a character and that character is maybe going to be a tiny little character who's yes, over in, yes. yeah. like you were in that Romano photograph, you're, you're over here. And then all of a sudden, because that character decides to, they become mm. Prince Michael of Kent, basically. In the book. <laughs> That's right. And people go, but don't be daft. They're your characters. You're writing them. How have they decided that? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm telling you, they just did. That's exactly what happens because this, the, 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 the character that, who's going to tell the story is actually an Australian journalist who is passionate about she has a PhD in Russian history. Yes, I know. <laughs> There's no coincidence. <laughs> but I I only sort of created her over the Christmas break because I needed I needed something more contemporary. You know, it was all kind of in 1943 and it was all a bit kind of just wasn't working. So I created this character and I discovered I really liked her. And she's kind of fun. And no one in this book so far is fun. But she's sort of light and modern and, you know, all those things. And so I started to sort of write a couple of chapters about her and then I decided that she will be the perfect person to tell this story because she can tell it in a in a way that will resonate with people today. Well, that's obviously a thing because your Of Food and Freedom memoir obviously deals with the history of Hungary, obviously also deals with the personal histories of your families, but it resonates so strongly with today and it resonates so strongly with anybody who's had to leave home. And it also resonates so beautifully with anybody who has moved to a new country and occasionally struggles with terminology. I mean, my favourite, the humour that runs through it is brilliant, but my favourite is, um, what was it that your mum called Lamingtons? <laughs> Flemingtons. I've had such fabulous feedback on that. When I, Someone said to me, someone very dear said to me the other day that when... They first read it. They thought it was a typo. And it was only a couple of pages later that they realised. My mother my mother spoke very good English by the end of it, but she would occasionally use the wrong word. And when she decided to start making Lamingtons, she thought they were called Flemingtons. So in our family, they're now called Flemingtons. Was this because it was Melbourne Cup time or, or just I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think she just knew the suburb. Flemington. I I don't know why, but she just knew the suburb Flemington. And by the time she realised it wasn't Flemingtons, in our family they were. Well, I can readily admit that the original edit pass that I did on the book using word track changes 
I had changed the title of that <laughs> chapter sure until did. I was halfway through it and thought, oh, no, that was what, oh, yeah. So I had to go back and reset everything. Um, I love the memoir and it was beautifully portrayed. And I love the fact that you're going to be writing the next book. But when you're not writing, what does Gabriella get up to? Um, mm, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you. But, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, we have a house in the Southern Highlands where I love to spend time. I read a lot. I mean, I, I love reading. I, I couldn't I couldn't exist without books. And I read real books. You know, I need the pages. I need yeah, that, that. Um, and that's basically it. I mean, I, I spend time with my family, I walk the dog, um, I cook. I I cook every night, but I'm not a spectacular cook like my mother is. Um, and I don't really enjoy baking. I mean, baking was her big thing. I will bake, but you know, it's not something that I will leap out of bed going, oh, goody, I'm going to bake today. Um, and I work. I mean, I work quite long hours and I, I love what I do. Um, so it's it's a pretty full life. And finally, after three years, I'm going back to Hungary in July. I have family there still and I haven't been back. Um, I haven't been back since COVID. And in fact, um, in 2020, I had organised um, a group of people to take on a um, history tour to St. Petersburg and Budapest. And, of course, COVID killed it. And now with Petersburg, I mean, we can't go, so that's not going to happen. And I'm heartbroken that I won't be going back to Russia. The wheel turns and mm. um, and everything shall pass, I guess. So you, you will get back at some point, but, yeah, probably not. Now so. no, is not the time. Uh, when you spoke there about um, travelling, when you go back to Hungary, do you go and visit the castle that you were disinherited from? It's not a castle. It's a large manor house. Oh, I um, see. Sorry. It, it did read like a castle in the book. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do, but I, I don't go back thinking I'd really like these things very much. Um, I mean, Hungary, Hungary feels like home. My, my mother's family are all, you know, still back there. So they're very precious to me. I love going to Hungary and I don't go as a tourist which I love the fact that, you know, I just go and I feel very much at home. And there are special places that I visit. Um, the Corinthia Hotel in Budapest is, I think I'd actually like to be buried in the Corinthia Hotel in Budapest. It's absolutely stunning. And it's actually the hotel where my grandparents spent their honeymoon in 1920-something, so it's kind of special. But, no, I, I don't go back and nail notices to the door saying we want this back now. I don't know what we'd do with it if we got it back. I'm assuming when you say a large manor house, I'm, I mean, I haven't Googled the, the actual place on a map, but I'm, I'm imagining a substantial, almost like the picture behind you, a substantial land and there was a lot of landscape land. gardens. I mean, my mother's family had a lot of land. They were, they were, wine, they were wine growers. They had vineyards. They had big, big, big vineyards. And the part of Hungary where they came from is very famous for wine. Um, so they had had vineyards for generations. And, of course, in 1948, when the Russians um, nationalised everything, they, they lost everything. So they were actually working their own land, but it didn't belong to them any longer. Um, and, you know, with that, they lost the house, they lost the land, they lost pretty much everything. So, But that's what happened to everybody in Hungary. They're not, they're not special and different. They're just part of that fallout, unfortunately. And, like... All the rest of the population, they survived to tell the tale. Well, they did survive, and it's interesting because my 
my mother came out with my father, of course, and but all her family stayed there, whereas all my father's family came out. So all my mother's family is still there. And my uncle, she only had one brother, a younger brother. And my uncle made, you know, a, a very um, good life for he and his family. I mean, within the constraints of, you know, where they were living. And that chapter I wrote about, um, you know, liar, liar, your regime is on fire, about the, the disconnect in that society, um, you know, talked very much about what it was like for him, you know, trying to buy this car and not being able to buy it, and I had to lie so he could buy it. And it just shows how fraught that life then was. But they made the best of it. They've, they've survived it. Hungarians just get through stuff. I did love your introduction to it about how Hungary had been pretty much invaded by everybody that had been passing by at some point or other. So with the book having been out, now it's been out a little while, it came out just before Christmas, um, and what's the best feedback you've had on it to date? Um, the best, and that's, that's a hard one, I think the best feedback I've had is somebody who I hadn't seen for a very long time, who read it, and they said it made, him, made them cry. Brilliant. I mean, a number, quite a number of people have told me that it makes them cry, which wasn't what I set out to do. But if that's what it does, so be it. Well, if you can stir passions to the point where people can laugh and cry, then mm. you know that your writing is working. I, I remember having a discussion with uh, someone about, uh, in fact, one of our previous authors in a previous interview, Lee Gayton, who said, she has a dictionary on her desk and all the words are in there, but they don't stir emotion until you put them into a certain order. That's exact. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the fact that it makes people cry is a reflection of Hungarian culture and Hungarian people because Hungarians laugh and cry, you know, all like it, they're very emotional. They're very out there. You know, they're not that stiff. They don't do stiff upper lip at all. And so I think it's just a nice reflection of, of the, the country I was writing about. Listen, it's been wonderful for you to take some time out of your very busy day. And I know that the work that you do, by the way, we haven't discussed it, but you work for the Melanoma Trust, which is incredible. The Melanoma Institute, yeah. Incredibly Australia. important for Australia. It is. It is. So, so everyone go get your skins checked. <laughs> yeah, congratulations to you for that as well. Now, before we leave... Mm. Uh, 15 quickfire questions, if mm. you are willing. Okay, um, yeah, sure. Sure. And I shall make sure I've got them in front of me. Uh, for anybody that's joining this for the first time that hasn't seen any of these interviews, we have absolutely, without question, uh, plagiarised to death the actor studio questions that used to be uh, asked on television. And we've mm -hmm. added a few of our own and we've taken some from elsewhere. So, Gabriella Lang, PhD in Russian history and author <laughs> of the wonderful Food and Freedom, for Food and Freedom, what is your favourite book? The Bible. And if you have one, what is your least favourite book? I don't have a least favourite book. I have a genre. It's biographies of sportsmen. Okay. What creativity-wise turns you on? Memories. And what turns you off? Loud music. Summer or winter? Summer. On a completely free day to do anything you want to, who do you spend it with? People I love. Mountains or oceans? Oceans. 
What is your favourite movie? Gone with the Wind. And if you have only one song to listen to for the rest of your life, what is it? For the Good Times. Who makes you laugh the most? My daughter. What smell do you love? My daughter's perfume as she's leaving the house on a big date. What a brilliant answer. <laughs> what smell do you hate? Traffic. Other than the professions that you have undertaken, what would you like to do? Be a history teacher. What profession would you not like to do? Be a cricket commentator. I'm, I'm sensing a theme. Yeah, there's a theme there. And given your first answer, I'm assuming that if heaven exists, and you believe it does, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome home. Everyone's been waiting for you. Oh, beautiful. Gabriella, thank you ever so much for, again, taking thank you, the time it's out of a fun. busy day. And we will look forward to seeing your Romanov-based fiction book on my desk fairly shortly then. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. Thanks, Ian. It's been fun. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this latest episode of Book Realities, our Interviews with Authors series. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and turn your notifications on so that you never miss any content updates from us. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or a review as it really helps the podcast's visibility, as does passing the pod on to any writers or author friends that you may have who you know will be interested in it. And join our exclusive mailing list at www.bookreality.com. The next episode will be released this time next week, but until then, stay safe and well. All the best.